0: .NET Rocks episode 755 with guest Bill Wilder. Recorded live Friday, March 23rd, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.NET, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now, here are Carl and Richard.
1: Thank you very much. Welcome back to Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Hey, man, what's up? I have been... You know I don't have enough monitors, right? Yes.
2: You know that. I do. So... Everybody's been talking about this, you know, Retina display on the iPad and stuff like that, and how there's just, you know, there's now high resolution monitors in the Windows space. So I went looking for high resolution monitors, and of course, what most people mean by high resolution and what I mean by high resolution are not the same thing. You know, for me, I've always had a twenty-five sixty by sixteen hundred display, right? That's the thirty inch, and then I hang a pair of twenties in portrait mode, so I have a forty-nine sixty by sixteen hundred workstation. I got
1: thirties all over the studio.
2: You love the thirties, love them. And so that's pretty much the highest resolution monitor you can buy these days. And you, as what well know as well as I do, there's problems with them, right? They're they're DVID, you know, they're a little cranky. It's not a simple monitor to use. So you know, I'm after like, what about a 4K by 4K monitor? Like, what could we do there? But uh, mm. they are only in prototype. There's no video cards that can drive them. It's just sort of an orphan. But I just saw a press release from Samsung. Oh. Samsung has made a 2560 by 1600 display, right? Uh-huh. That's not surprising. No. It's 10 inches diagonal. Oh man, that's tiny. That is dense. That's dense. That, and they and they're talking about using it for tablets. Like this is the retina display that a Win ta- Win 8 tablet could use.
1: Now what when you say retina display, what does that mean? Well, the
2: idea is that it's a resolution high enough that your eyes can't see the pixels anymore. That it's the same resolution as your retina. Ah. And that seems to be somewhere between 250 and 300 dots per inch. I don't know that it's actually true, but it's a good line. Uh I'm just thinking, you know, if I got those 10-inch displays from Samsung and lined like six of them up, say two by three matrix. Yeah. Now you're talking about a screen not a whole lot bigger than a
1: 30-inch diagonal screen. Right. But with six times the resolution, which, you know, would make me happy. But do you really need it? I mean, seriously, do you ever have a problem where something is pixelated on your 30-inch? I don't. I want things to look better. And that's the thing you notice
2: with these really high DPI screens. And that's the important part. It's not resolution. It's DPI. Right. High DPI screens look better, period. Yep. And so the more we could do to look better, the you know, the nicer it would be. And it just seems to be a market that's languishing. So it doesn't actually mean higher resolution because multi-monitor is getting pretty easy now. It's really about... Can we get high DPI screens at these high resolutions and gang them together in a useful way? Well,
1: if you think about it, it is resolution. I mean, we've been using the term resolution to mean height times width, but that's really not it. It's really density yeah. is what resolution means. So, uh, got anything for a Better no Framework today? I do, in fact. And, uh, hey, do, do you know anyone who went to South by Southwest this year? I do you know a few people who went to South by Southwest. That is becoming the place to go every spring it in seems America. Like a very hot
2: show. I almost wonder if it's already peaked.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, I I took a look at all the different venues where things are happening. They're sprawled across convention centers and fields and bars and clubs and every place they can possibly find to squeeze people in there. Well, I also think it's a double whammy for you because it's a huge music festival too. Oh yeah, and you have a riot. Don't think I don't have my sights on that for next year. Actually, I do. Hmm, interesting idea. But anyway, I just I found a couple of things online that brought me to South by Southwest videos. Some of them have gone down already because they're only online for a while. Right. But uh, but it's interesting. You know, stuff about Azure, stuff about development.
2: Well, yeah, I know Nokia was there, and uh, certainly Microsoft was there. Like, there's a splash going
1: on. That's pretty cool. All right, kind of show. So here we go, Better Know Framework. Awesome. And you know what? We're changing the name. Are we? Better Know It. Better Know Something. Better Know It. Better Know It. Yeah. Okay. What do we better know? It's just a factoid of the day, whatever it is. So I went uh, looking for Azure-related things today, and I found uh, this great blog post by Shiju Varghese. Sorry, Shiju, if I got your name wrong. But if I pronounced it wrong, but it's anyway, it's tips and important steps for migrating apps to Windows Azure. Hmm. And you can get there be, by going to tinyurl.com/slash Azure Migration Tips. And they are very concise tips. Starting with convert the ASPNet app into a web role project, and then uh going to consider moving out some configuration settings and web config files to service so that you do not require redeployment after every change in configuration. Data in that file can be edited at runtime. And then all the way to if you're using SQL Azure, use the SQL Server 28R2 client so that you can easily migrate database schema and data into SQL Azure. And that, of course, means you know unless you're using uh, the migration wizard, which I highly recommend. So, there you go. It's good tips, good stuff from Shiju Varghese.
2: Nice. It's great to see all this stuff getting together into one place because let's face it, most apps go into Azure or brownfield. They're migrating, they're not greenfield.
1: That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Richard, who's talking
2: to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 747. And if you recall, that was the show uh, with Ron Mensching talking about the Wix tool set. Yep. Which I got to say, people reacted really strongly to. It's interesting. And here's a, a fresh comment from Timothy Clank. Who says, uh, great show. I was doing a lot of nodding during the discussion about how still today many people dismiss how critically important a good installation package is.
1: Good thing he wasn't nodding off. Mm,
2: yeah. <laughs> I, I get a few emails from folks saying, I, I pull into my driveway and sit in my car nodding, and my wife's looking at me like, what's wrong with you? And he just wants to finish the show. <laughs> Uh, Tim goes on to say, it is all about first impressions. The user's first impression of your app does not begin when they double-click its desktop shortcut for the first time. It begins when they double-click setup.exe. I was reminded of a story I heard a long time ago about an applicant to Harvard paper-clipping a dollar bill to their application along with a short note. <laughs> the note requested that the reviewer go get a donut, take a short break, relax, and basically get into their happy place before they read the application. A good installation package is like this. It will set the user's mood to frustrated or happy place prior to them double-clicking on your application's desktop icon for the first time. Yep. Couldn't agree more. You're absolutely right. That's your out-of-box experience right there. Get the setup. Make it. Heck, I think you should make setups a little funny.
1: And you know what? I I like the dollar and donut trick when I get pulled over for speeding, too. That (laughs) really works well.
2: Donut in a can, perhaps? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Don't eat that donut. The one that
2: was in the no. can, don't eat that donut. That's a bad donut. Yeah. That's a long time ago. Hey, Timothy, thanks so much for your great email. We totally agree. So I'm sending you a .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET on the show of your choice, whatever you were listening to. And if we read it, we'll send you a mug.
1: And, uh, you know, it's NDC time here coming up. Uh, coming up.
2: I'm excited. Love that show.
1: Yep, it's June 6th to 8th in Oslo, Norway, Some place we've been going every year now for mm-hmm. a few years. And uh, we're speaking there. We're doing .NET Rocks Live and some other things. Usually they put us in a little fishbowl right down on the, on the main floor so you can stop by and say hi.
2: Yeah, and please do. We love talking to folks that are listening to the show. Give us some ideas of what you'd like to see next and what
1: we could do better. And before we introduce our guest, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by industry experts and MVPs, such as people that you hear on the show every day. And Mm -hmm. they release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access time to their vast video library. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on software practices, including Agile, Scrum, TFD, in a full library of design patterns. Try Plural Site today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And finally, we get to the meat of this show our guest, Bill Wilder. Bill is a hands on architect, consultant, speaker, writer, and community leader focused on helping companies and individuals succeed with cloud using the Windows Azure platform. Bill began working with Windows Azure when it was unveiled at the Microsoft PDC in 08. And in October '09, founded Boston Azure, the first Windows Azure user group in the world. Bill is a Windows Azure MVP and is the author of the upcoming book, Cloud Architecture Patterns, scheduled to be published mid-2012. Some days he wishes Hadoop and Big Data weren't so interesting, since they are distracting him from finishing his damned book. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Bill, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks. Good to be here.
1: How's Boston today?
0: Boston is beautiful. It's tough to be indoors on a beautiful day like this.
1: Boy, you got that right, man. Ah, good thing I have a 30-inch screen. (laughs) I'm just saying. Yeah, it's beautiful here in New England this week. What can I say?
0: Right, Kyle. You're uh, right up the street in Connecticut?
1: Pretty much. I guess you call that down the street.
0: Down the street, yes.
1: Yeah, down the street. But anyway, uh, you know what's really weird is that people look at the map of the United States, especially West Coasters, and they think that Connecticut is so close that like the everything's so close here. So I remember once Chris Kinsman says, "Hey, I'm uh, dropping into Boston. Can we do lunch?" And and I said, uh, "Well, you know, it's a couple hours drive from New London to Boston." He goes, "Oh, really? I just looked on the map and thought you were like right next door." <laughs> Well, everything's smaller in New England. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because of the projection, the way the map works. Yeah, nice. So, tell us about your experiences with Azure, and especially migration. Because as Richard and I were talking uh, about earlier, there's. Uh, do you think that there's more migrations or brand new projects starting on Azure? Brownfield versus greenfield projects.
0: Yeah, I would say there's uh, a number of each, but in my personal experience, a lot of the projects that are moving to Azure are either being retooled for Azure or are greenfield projects altogether.
1: Now when you mean retooled, what does that mean?
0: When you consider the architecture of an application, there are some important differences between an application that's architected for, let's say, pre-cloud And an architect and an application that's architected to be, let's say, cloud native, in order to take advantage of all the features of Azure or other cloud platforms for that matter, to be efficient, to scale properly, to have the availability and uptime you're probably expecting, there are some differences in your application that you need to account for. So you can you can, uh, as sometimes I said, you can forklift an application up to the cloud and it can work in the cloud. It just won't give you Hmm. the. Same level of benefits that you would get if you retooled it to take advantage of the capabilities that are sort of unique to the cloud
1: so when you say retool you really are talking about taking an existing app and moving it into the cloud but not just simply like pressing a button and moving it I mean you're you're redoing it so that it works in the cloud
0: yes so yeah. for, for example a uh, a lot of applications that exist in an on-prem uh, you know, pre-cloud kind of mindset are not really architected to scale out, to scale horizontally. And that is uh, pretty important in the cloud, for, not just for scalability reasons, but for availability uh, and manageability reasons.
2: So when we talk about big data, and I know this is the bane of your existence <laughs> now, uh, we did a show ages ago oh, on yeah. a project called Dryad. Oh my God. Yeah, with Microsoft Research, and that was actually Microsoft's big data solution. And they gave up on that; they've abandoned Dryad to use Hadoop instead, which shocked.
0: Yeah, them. that's a pretty cool story. They had been pushing pretty hard on Dryad. They had, I think, even right before they pulled the plug on it, they had rebranded it as uh, Link to HPC, if memory serves. And then the uh, the rise of Hadoop made them uh, reconsider. I suppose it's a it, the strategy has changed from competing with Hadoop to collaborating with Hadoop. uh, And as it turns out, they really have quite a good story that's nicely complementary with Hadoop. I think one thing that changed uh, as um, Dryad Link was growing up was that uh, Hadoop has existed, I think, for about five, six, seven years, somewhere in there. But it wasn't I don't think it was open sourced by uh, Yahoo till maybe a couple of years ago and sent to the Apache Foundation. Mm-hmm. So it probably took a good amount of maturing over in the as an Apache project and getting a little airtime in the industry before it was really clear that it was catching on as you know kind of the next big thing. so that timing might make sense from that point of view.
1: We really need to step back and talk about Hadoop. And explain that from step one.
0: Sure. I think even before talking about Hadoop, it probably makes sense to uh, talk about big data briefly. About maybe uh, 10 years ago or so, uh, I think it was a Gartner analyst who came up with the term, the the three V's of big data. And the three V's are volume, velocity, and variety. And you hear that often talked about. Sometimes people have as many as I've heard five V's, but... Uh, the the three Vs from the original uh, pitch from Gartner included volume, which is how much data we have. And over the years, it's grown from megabytes to gigabytes to terabytes. And now we have some of the bigger shops, such as uh, Facebook or Yahoo, who have tens of petabytes of data in there, uh, that they're trying to manage. And often, in the case of those two companies at least, in the case of those two companies, at least they're dealing with it with uh, Hadoop. They're managing it in Hadoop. The second of the three V's is uh, velocity, and this is the rate at which data is coming at us. Kind of interesting. You know, we we have all sorts of data coming off of the web, of course, and we have for forever. We have clickstream data from uh, that shows that you know the path our users are at our, at our e-commerce site took through our application we can analyze we have uh, log data just uh, web log data we have sensors coming out of uh, you know all kinds of places these days i was talking to somebody uh, recently who's in a startup and they're instrumenting all of the streetlights in you know various cities with sensor data really yeah isn't that and the information that we can gain from that is probably even unpredictable but you can probably imagine the efficiencies that we can help uh... drive from knowing more about our world another sensor source is this movement known as quantified self where folks just out in the world like the three of us could decide to hook a sensor up to our body whether it be a pedometer that's been around for a long time or something more sophisticated uh... there there are lots of things that you can get, um, things that will analyze your sleep, you know, a sensor that you go to sleep with, uh, it'll measure your exercise, measure your blood pressure and heart rate and all these kinds of, uh, data points. And imagine if we have half the planet doing that, what we can learn, how we can correlate with disease and, uh, health and, uh, alertness and productivity. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be learned from that huge volume of data.
1: Right. Yeah and and it boy you talk about devices on the web i mean this is there's i i i don't know who where it was gartner or something a prediction that there there will be more traffic from devices soon than from actual people using the internet
0: <laughs> right
1: I, I don't know where i i don't know where i read that but and i'm not sure i believe it but but it does put things into perspective
0: well i've i've talked to two other folks lately one who's got sensors for uh, there are t- temperature sensors that you might send with food so you know if it was ever thawed out, for example. And there are, there are tons of them. They're all over the place. And another set of sensors uh, was uh, I, I know somebody who's doing uh, building sensors, so your HVAC uh, environment. Sensors collected in Azure, uh, processed, analyzed, optimized. So that's the, there's a lot of that. So this is the velocity. This stuff is coming at us at a pretty high rate. So volume and velocity. And then uh, the third V is variety. And the variety speaks to that uh, this data isn't all coming neatly in a uh, third normal form relational database table. But it's coming at us in many, many formats. For example, we have even this, the .NET Rocks show. It's producing lots of audio content. That's kind of unstructured, untraditional data, but there's it's data nonetheless that we have to manage. Right. Somebody has to manage. There are Word documents. There are web pages. There are you know, all the Wikipedia documents. So, and another interesting uh, you know, data variety is about a year ago, I saw a post by, I think it was Foursquare, where they used comments entered by residents of various cities to pick the uh, rudest cities in the world based on uh, the amount of uh, huh. curse words contained in the, in the comments. So that's pretty unstructured data and doing pretty, you know, I'd say, weird stuff with it. But that they used uh, uh, and they explained how they used Hadoop to you know, take this untraditional kind of data and turn it into information.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you all about their support for Windows Azure. Telerik was one of the first vendors to provide support for Windows Azure back in early 2009, when the cloud platform was first released as Cloud Trust Protocol. They now offer everything needed to help .NET developers build quality web, desktop, and Windows phone apps for the cloud quickly and easily out of the box. Check out Telerik.com slash Azure and take the shortcut to Windows Azure development, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, so we get big data. We're twenty minutes into the show. We still haven't defined Hadoop. Tell us what it is.
0: So Hadoop is uh, kind of two things. One thing Hadoop is is it's a it's an engine. Hadoop is an engine for running what's called MapReduce jobs. Back around 2003 or 2004, Google released a a paper uh, describing what their MapReduce algorithm was that they were using to basically crunch the internet so they could provide their search engine. And very quickly, in a kind of a computer science sense, the programming languages that we're familiar with, many of them have the concepts of Map and Reduce built in. C-sharp has it, Python, many of them. So for example, a map is uh, a function that accepts a list of items, like uh, the list of integers 1, 2, 3, 4, and it produces a different list that is uh, the result of operating on each of the items in the list. So a squaring map function might return uh, uh, 2, 4, 9, 16. And then a reduce function is one that takes an entire list and, re- and instead of returning another list like map, it actually reduces. It returns a single answer, such as okay. um, if you give it one, two, three, four, it might give the sum of that, which uh, I think is ten. So m- those very simple concepts, map and reduce, when used at scale, can be very, very powerful. So, for example, when you're learning map reduce or Hadoop, the kind of hello world. In that space is the word counting algorithm. So the challenge is, what do you do if you want to count all the words in a, in a document? And uh, you can very simply imagine in your mind, maybe you create a hash table, and every time you find a word, you look it up, it's in the hash table, you increment the number by one. And in you know, 15 minutes or so, you could write a you know, C-sharp program or something that would uh, add up all the words. But what if you wanted to do that with a terabyte of data? That's the algorithm isn't going to work. So That's where map and reduce come in. Hadoop will facilitate this uh, wa- uh, uh, high scale map and reduce operation where uh, in the word counting example, you can give all of your data files to Hadoop. Say you have you know a, a, a petabyte of files. Hadoop will chunk those up. Distribute them. I'll tell you a little bit about the distributed architecture in a minute. But the programming model is that Hadoop will call your map function repeatedly with a block of data, and your map function would do something very simple, like parse each line into words and and, and count the words on that line. uh, So, the .NET Rocks show. The.NET .NET rock show. Each of those would be emitted as a single word with a word count at the end, which is a one, and that's all it would do. And and, and of course Hadoop repeatedly calls you until all of the word all of the lines have been uh, completely processed. And then there's a magical process in the middle called shuffle, which will find all of the instances of the word the and dot, and net, and rocks show, and so forth. And it will organize them so that the 27,000 or 27 million instances of the word the are packed together. And that would be passed to your reduce function as a key value pair of the, the key is the, the word, and the value list is all the instances where it's come up before. So it would be, in this very simple case, it would be the word the followed by you know 27 million instances. Uh, uh, counts of one, and then all the reduce function has to do is add those all up, and it comes out with a final answer of the you know twenty seven million. And
1: so, wait, so wait a second. I, I guess what I'm, I you're getting into details now, but I guess the, I don't want to quite leave the big picture just yet. The so map reducing is essentially taking a huge, huge set of data, and then sort of depending on what you're looking for. Reduce it down to a smaller set of kind of like reducing a set of fractions to their lowest common denominator, is that essentially what you're doing uh, reducing it to a smaller set
0: uh, I guess in one sense it's a way to scale a question, so a very simple question like what is the most frequent word in this list? Very simple to ask, yeah, and the answer is a very small you know a, a, a tiny fraction of the amount of data that went into it, so in that sense absolutely it's it's giving you simple answers based on um, Sometimes simple questions, but complex uh, amount of data to process. Right. Okay. So um, I can add that uh, the, this process scales up nicely, um, and uh, if you—I don't know if you guys were ever C++ programmers, but you remember, might remember when C++ first emerged, it was a preprocessor for the uh, for the C compiler. So you, you, it right. produced C code. So if you look at the Hadoop system, it is two things. It is both the Hadoop engine, which is a distributed uh, uh, computing model, which – When it does this map reduce stuff, it's doing it over a cluster of maybe, you know, say it could be 10 or 100 different computers. And it manages all that, manages failures. It manages distributing the data. It manages, uh, farming out the little tasks and assembling back together in one place. So it's a, you know, basically an operating system in that sense. But the Hadoop ecosystem is a bigger picture thing. The, in the Hadoop ecosystem contains more than just the Hadoop operating system and MapReduce processor like I described, but it also contains all these higher level tools. I mentioned the C front for C++ uh, C++ programming 20 years ago. There are libraries or subsystems within the Hadoop ecosystem, such as uh, they're called Pig and Hive, which are higher level constructs than the straight-up MapReduce low-level programming. Even though it's very simple programming, if you want to do something more complicated, it can get a little bit hairy pretty quickly. So Hive, for example, allows you to use a SQL-like syntax to ask questions of your data. There's a little bit of setup that you do, and it might run for a few minutes to set up. Once you do that, you're able to Basically, ask it questions through a SQL language, and that is converted for you, just like c into MapReduce jobs, and you wait a couple of minutes for an answer. It's worth noting that uh, the couple of minutes for an answer part, uh, depending on the query, um, Hadoop is not really intended for real-time processing. It's a batch system. It's a very
2: post-facto, right? You you, you uh, What I like about Hadoop, we use it in st- internally at Strange Loop, is this idea that you don't have to normalize all the data. That you know, typically, if you were going to, you know, what you're describing so far, Bill, sounds like a data warehouse.
0: And uh, often uh, Hive is talked about as kind of a the Hadoop version of data warehousing. Yes, except yeah, with some important but, differences, of course.
2: And of course, traditional data warehousing, you do a lot of uh, transformation, loading, cleaning of data.
0: Yes. And there's some interesting differences, right? So it, it's very structured too, right? You have a, a, a star schema or some denormalized schema in your data warehouse that you have a lot of uh, expert DBAs you know, planning out and working on. And the, the change cycle in an environment like that is usually not very quick. Unlike in a traditional data warehouse, Hadoop's data is already fairly loosely structured. There isn't a rigid schema because it's not a relational database. So you can write pretty much any kind of query that you can dream up with with Hive or or Pig, which is a similar kind of uh, abstraction on top of um, the data and on top of MapReduce. And it's kind of similar to uh, the NoSQL movement where... The the, kind of the handcuffs are off where the the databases tend not to have rigid schemas so you can iterate more rapidly without letting the rigidity of the data structure of the uh, database rather get in your way
1: hey uh sorry i'm not participating as much in this but uh, i'm really enjoying listening to you guys but it's time to do some giveaway stuff richard it's that happy time again it's that happy time again to Give away some very special stuff, and uh, we're giving away two things today. We're giving away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to Prashant Pierre.
2: Congratulations, Prashant. Congratulations. Golf clap for you.
1: Golf clap for Prashant. And uh, that's a $2,000 value, of course. Uh, The Telerik Ultimate Collection has all of their good stuff. And also, we're giving away free passes to DevTeach. Did you know that? Oh, DevTeach in Vancouver. Yeah, we're going to give two. Wow, I'm going to be there. Of course, me too. You're going to be there. We'll do a little dot and rocks. We're going to give away uh, six in total. So okay. the first. So here's our first, first winner. winner is Stephen Harrison. Congratulations, congratulations, Stephen. Come up to
2: Vancouver. And this is golf clap for this you. Is May
1: 29th and 30th in Vancouver, and uh, hobnob in the Campbell Meister's hometown. I will tell you what. Just
2: to spike it up a notch, give you incentive to come. We're going to host the speakers party at my home. I think all six winners should they come to Vancouver and attend Dev Teach are welcome. I well. love it. You like that's that? That's great. So I hope you'll come out because then you can come to the pl- come to the house, see the lab, eat some good barbecue because that's what I'm making.
1: Yeah, bring a bottle of something special. <laughs> yes, I believe we will be doing some scotch sampling that <laughs> night. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, anyway, uh, continue on, gentlemen. So when you're
2: programming against something like pig what language are you speaking
0: <laughs> pig latin uh that was a good setup, nice. if you didn't know that <laughs> uh, yeah it's actually the the language is called pig latin it's a kind of a workflow language or a data flow language that somebody invented for this purpose and it's it's not a language you know i couldn't compare it exactly with anything but if you look at some of the constructs they're not terribly unlike sql
2: yeah they're sql-ish well said but they—they uh, they are sort of their own thing, and you do have to learn these things to to make them work.
0: Yes, I would offer that the learning curve for at least for the tooling hasn't been uh, terribly steep.
2: Really? Because I mean, when we were playing with this long before Microsoft got involved, and you know, patchy pro- uh, projects tend to—you got to you gotta read the docs and ask a lot of questions, sort of hammer your way through things. It's not that simple.
0: Well, um, I came at it when the Hadoop. On Azure, CTP was released. That's when I—that's when it really got my attention because it's now as a service. Right. I don't have to deal with installing Hadoop, installing a, a Pig and Hive, and there are some other uh, really interesting players in that ecosystem like uh, Mahout, which is a, a machine learning uh, library. Uh, so that asks you to, that allows you to ask questions about your data when you don't even know what questions you want to ask. Uh, So class,
2: yeah, because it just try and finds relationships. But I mean, to your point here, Microsoft has made this way easier by just putting it on Azure, and you can right. And that's
0: where I came in. So you go if you log into the Hadoop Mm -hmm. on Azure portal, there is uh, the first thing you're going to see is uh, you you basically click 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 to uh, instantiate a Hadoop cluster. So you you tell it what size cluster you want, Uh, and there's a say a JavaScript console in there which is fascinating Mm -hmm. because you can, with a few, you know, there's uh, there's some samples in there to get you started. So if you go into the JavaScript code, in a few minutes, you can have completed a MapReduce job using JavaScript. Now the interesting thing that for people who aren't familiar with the heritage of Hadoop is it was written by, um, uh, it was written in Java a long time ago and the MapReduce functions historically needed to be written in Java, or at least uh, that was the optimal way to do it. So if you didn't write your, your MapReduce function in Java, you would use what's known as the Streaming API. And that basically uses standard in and standard output to communicate with uh, the the Hadoop system to get data in and out. So there's always a little bit of a performance penalty there. But one of the things that Microsoft is bringing to the table is they're partnering with one of the two best-known Hadoop companies. Uh, this is Hortonworks, to, to work with them to contribute back some of these changes that Microsoft would like to see to make it work better uh, for, you know, for a broader range of uh, technologies, such as JavaScript, C-Shop, and I know there are others out there that I assume are also using the streaming API, the little slower ones, such as uh, Scala and Java, um, Scala and Python, for example.
2: Hmm. Well, because people want to program in C Sharp, right?
0: Oh, certainly. There's a couple of million .NET developers who do,
2: and
1: JavaScript,
0: and absolutely, yeah. yeah.
2: Mm. But JavaScript's a pretty compelling, pretty compelling way to go about it. So maybe we need to walk through a scenario here from the Azure context. So. I don't know, what's your big set of data you're working on these days, Bill?
0: So, um, Bill doesn't have a set of big data right now. Bill is in learning mode. He's a hacker trying to learn the system.
2: Right. So what do you use for a sample set?
0: So here's a good example. So you can use the sample code and the sample data on the uh, Hadoop on Azure portal to walk through a complete scenario. You can use... um, Let's see. So just for the simple example, there is a body of text that is already available to you on the portal that you can point your uh, Hadoop job at. Uh, It will import the text for you, and it will run the MapReduce jobs, and it will produce an answer that you can go and visit through, the, say, the JavaScript console. It's really not much more complex than that. There's a JavaScript console through which you can run pretty much arbitrary JavaScript code. So part of the samples that they're promoting on the, on the portal include uh, a graphing. So you can run the Hadoop job, produce some output, and then use a graphing library and JavaScript to produce a pie chart or, or, you know, a histogram or something. Right. But the, the, the more interesting than what Bill's doing is what the industry is doing, I think. Mm -hmm. so, I mentioned that, say, um, Facebook has. Uh, I think they said they have about 30 petabytes of data that they have stored in a Hadoop cluster that they're they're using. And some of the things that we've all seen as you know humans out in the using the web include like uh, book recommendations on Amazon. Uh, that when you're on LinkedIn or Facebook, when it says, "Hey, you may know this person. You might want to connect." Um, ad targeting. All those things are are available in the data streams that these uh, big shops have uh, on hand, and they have for years. And now it's just really economical for everybody to make more use of them.
2: Right. Well, and I think Azure is an interesting angle on this because one of the strengths I've seen in Hadoop is you've made it really simple to choose, do I process for a long time using a few instances, or do I process it very quickly using lots of instances, spread it across many, many machines? And that just screams cloud to me.
0: Absolutely. That's part of what got me really interested in it. I'm, I'll say I'm an Azure snob. I try to do work only somehow related to Azure. And in mm-hmm. um, this made uh, Hadoop and big data, this, the, the introduction of Hadoop on Azure brought big data and Hadoop into my, you know, Azure snob radar.
1: Sure. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by PowerSuite from Grape City Power Tools. These are the core essential tools you need to do anything with data. Visualize, report, interact. Wow, the whole thing. It's the ultimate toolkit. Well, we've been using active reports for 15 years. The coolest new feature is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire.
2: I don't think there's anything like it right now on the market. You know, something that can just literally out of the box have your own reporting system in the app and, you know, and not having to go into a separate system to report. You know, I think it's a great product.
1: Spread.net, let's face it, we're building business apps for our bosses. They want Excel. And
2: they understand that metaphor.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know what they do. Yeah, they want to import their Excel data, merge it with data from our application, maybe do it backwards and forwards and slice it up anyway. We have
2: a long-standing relationship with Spread. A typical report is something like 3,000 rows by 200 columns, and it needs to be produced really quickly. We love the system. It's fast. Mm. It does what we need it to do. We have very large spreadsheets that we produce. It just works.
1: And active analysis is like a a dream come true. It's a custom control that's a totally self-contained business intelligence application. A developer can just go into the application, connect it to our data, give it to a business guy, and they can slice and dice and look and graph and OLAP their way to happiness.
2: The active analysis component represents a level of advancement that I have not seen before and what we can still call a component deployed with a full-fledged user interface.
1: Yeah, active analysis is just fantastic. I actually think it's a great tool for developers to be able to show their companies how to do BI. And with MultiRow, it's really easy to set a data source and create strongly typed controls. There's 23 different cell types built into the product.
2: Yeah, very powerful, flexible control. You can take a tabular grid data set and just smash it apart and take your individual cells of your record and put them wherever you need to. You can really design the complete layout of your report in MultiRow.
1: And Richard... Tell me how does the standalone active chart compare to the chart that's integrated tightly into Spread? You know, it's
2: actually the same thing. That's impressive. It's the same charting engine and the same API. You can actually, with one line of code, take your chart from inside of Spread and pull it out into an instance of a standalone chart control.
1: Suite, you know what a value. Everything, the best of what they offer at Grape City, all combined into one package. Suite, incredible
2: value and incredible price.
1: Um, I I
2: just wonder, I don't know if you've done the experiments along these lines, like have you actually taken one of those sample sets and said, okay, what happens when I run this on two instances? What happens when I run it on 10? What happens when I run it on a hundred?
0: Uh, uh, I have not uh, done that kind of analysis, although no, I haven't done that kind of analysis.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) When we've done it, a strange loop, you know, the, the, it's almost linear progression. Every time you double the number of machines, you cut the time in half. It's really clean.
0: So, are you running? Uh, I would assume that you're running an on-prem uh, Hadoop. We're
2: doing, oh, yeah, we're the Apache guys for that for that particular problem. So, this is literally taking our load test pizza boxes, the little uh, Dell 1950s, wiping off the web servers and stuff. You know, all image based anyway. Loading on Hadoop, and you know, we've done it. I think the largest one we did was 24 machines, but we're crushing this analytical data from the appliances literally every page request for hundreds of web servers so it's billions and billions of rows yeah and we're looking for these little anomalies and you know we started out doing this in sql server and it just took it took forever and the answer was a couple hundred gram worth more licenses and hardware in sql server like it was so expensive and here we were just able to repurpose existing gear and distribute across pretty ordinary pizza box types of machines and make it work.
0: Interesting. And the, the performance characteristics might not be exactly the same as you uh, go from you know four to eight machines on, uh, on Hadoop on Azure. Uh, be- right. Because one of, the, uh, one of the tenets of this big data movement is to bring the compute to where the data is.
2: Right. Well, therein lies the real problem. If you've got ten petabytes of data, it ain't gonna go on a USB key.
0: <laughs>
2: right. And if you're copying it across your Wi-Fi connection, like or even a even a gigabit Ethernet connection, like that's just hours and hours and hours. It's physically hard to move that much data around.
0: Yes. So the cloud scenario is going to make extra sense and be extra interesting for Companies who are already storing their data in the cloud.
2: Right. Yeah. I, I got to think if you've got a petabyte in your office and you now are talking about doing Hadoop in the cloud, the f- question number one is how does this petabyte get to the cloud where I don't have to pay per byte getting it there?
1: That's got to be a pretty unique situation, I imagine. I, I think anybody who's uh, going to be working with that much data is going to. Oh uh, well, I don't know. I can't tell. It just seems to me that that if you're putting if you're putting something like that in the cloud, you, do you have the data already, and are you moving the data to the cloud, or is it stuff that's going to be generated and collected
0: in the cloud? I would say it's both. If you're if you're collecting it on prem, not in the cloud, you probably and if it's very you know like petabytes, like you're saying, you're probably going to want to use an on prem. Uh, instance of Hadoop. So Microsoft's strategy is to not just do Hadoop on Azure, but also Hadoop on Windows. So you will be able to do right. that. And also, it's worth mentioning, part of the ecosystem of tools in the you know, Hadoop toolbox, You know, it's bigger than just the Hadoop engine. I mentioned Pig and Hive and Mahout. Uh, there's also a set of uh, business intelligence tools from Microsoft that they're working hard to integrate into that ecosystem, and there's a couple of study or you know, blog posts or case studies or something out there. One of them is um, Clout. I saw a talk by somebody at I think it was TripAdvisor, and both of them kind of raved about how valuable the the ability to create a data cube with SQL Server was. You know, uh, above the you know, there's no other tools like it in the market. Was the the takeaway for me? I'm not really a reporting guy. That that stuff doesn't resonate super well with me. But my takeaway was that Microsoft has some really compelling tools that can work with Hadoop.
2: Well, and the simplest being Excel, huh. Like like Excel Power Pivot makes a call through to the Hive ODBC driver. Yes, yeah, some- so you can actually you know surface Hive. In Excel,
0: yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Right, that's uh, very simple to do. So you're using Hive, uh, you know, you have the SQL-like language that you can use on the Hadoop on Azure portal, or you can go bring that same syntax out to, um, or the same, you know, capability out to an Excel client. Very powerful. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up, Carl uh, Richard.
1: We're interchangeable. Yeah, right. <laughs> we
2: we don't worry too much about that. So. Talk to me about the developer story here. What do devs need to care about for this?
0: So, first of all, the the change in the story is that increasingly devs are able to use the language of their choice. As I mentioned earlier, there'll be the the roadmap for Hadoop has uh, the ability to have a native, more native language support, so JavaScript, mm-hmm. C sharp, and so forth. Um, For the the common, you know, development scenarios, like a a developer Mm -hmm. doesn't really need to do anything different. Most developers, you obviously need to be in a scenario where there is a, we have a shitload of data.
2: Right. I mean, problem number, and it, it sounds like you've got a typical scenario here where you've got piles of data, and this is pretty common, I think, that you're not doing anything with. And they started having this discussion around data warehousing or OLT or OLAP or any kind of, we want to do this super kind of reporting, which comes equipped with very big price tags. And now you're saying, you know, is there a simpler way or does this data just not lend itself well to data warehousing? But, you know, from my perspective as a dev, I'm thinking there's some non-trivial programming under the hood to make this work.
0: I, I think a lot of the hard programming has been done by, for example, the guys at Facebook built Hive and contributed to the Apache project. And that, right. that takes a lot of complexity out of it. But my understanding is things like Hive and Pig, I saw a stat recently that said, I think it was for Pig, that Pig would generate map jobs that would run no more than 50% more slowly than if you had hand tuned them. This is the you know my am, am I going to use my optimizing compiler and let it do a better job than I can do, or am I going to handcraft right. the assembly language? The state of the art now is, according to that quote at least, that we're not quite at the point where Hive or pig will generate as efficient code as possible, so there's definitely some possible dev work there to speed this up, and I think also kind of the the trend in the cloud has been this idea of DevOps where the traditional operational roles. And the, there has been a clean separation with traditional development roles, but the mm-hmm. uh, the cloud has caused those to merge. There's a lot more automation, for example, and things that used to be a manual, you know, read the ops book and go through steps one through 27 to do this deployment are now a script that a developer wrote. Right. So I think we're going to see similar kinds of encroachment, uh, not on the operational side, but in towards the DBA side of the house, where...
2: I do find, you know, the reason we're doing that analysis at Strange Loop is to find out how our features are being used, you know, making sure they're doing what they, what we expected them to do. And so that feedback loop has affected the next features we built, which I find really interesting. The idea that ops would start pushing features to dev.
0: That is an awesome outcome. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And, and it comes from being analy- analyzed as data on mass. I mean, huge quantities of it. And, you know, funny, if you think about it, this is what Windows 8's all about. Like, Sanofsky is the guy who came up with Watson. He's come up with all this error reporting and, and so forth. Like, he's about collecting data from every single Windows user and then looking at it as a whole. And the result has been Windows 8. So... This is definitely a cultural thing that's happening to us all, all around us now, gathering more data about how products are being used and then shaping the product accordingly.
0: I, I think uh, – so you're building – you're driving features off of this at Strange Loop. I can also see driving usability improvements off it as well if you can do some mm-hmm. clickstream analysis.
2: We're just analyzing where you get your tech re- support requests on what features. Like there's all that connecting of different sources of data together, right? That, that's the thing I think we're just not doing enough of these days that we've got all these different piles of data. And if we bonded them together in a way that could then use a tool like Mahout to show relationships between them, it's like, Hey, you ship a new feature. There's a spike in tech support. That spike then goes down, but this one never went down. Maybe there's something wrong with that feature.
0: Absolutely, that that's a great use, great outcome for that.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm feeling more and more like I got to spend my time in DevOps because there's just not enough love here. This is what this can all be about.
0: I, I think a, a fantastic uh, difference too between how we might have been able to process that kind of data in the past. We had it in the Hadoop world. The time it takes to ask and answer questions that you just described, Richard, is so much shorter than it was in a pre-Hadoop world where we might have had right. to build a data warehouse and, you know, so much stuff. We've always had the data. Now we, we, we can just economically and efficiently ring answers out of it like we've never been able to before.
2: Right. And I think the big thing is you instead of the traditional data warehouse model where you've used the ETL process to convert all those different sources of data into a common model, which is bloody hard and time-consuming before you can do any analysis – Hadoop just leaves it alone, and you're essentially writing scripts to do that bonding on the fly. Yes. So, Bill, I feel like we're just about out of time here. Uh, What can we do to get people to get started with Hadoop? Where should they go?
0: The best way to get started with Hadoop on Azure, at least, is to go to HadooponAzure.com and apply to the CTP and get in and start using the bits. Uh, to, To learn about Hadoop more generally, you can go to hadoop.apache.org and look at the, there's a lot of material up there on not just the Hadoop itself, but the whole ecosystem. And you can, like me, you can spend many, many, many days uh, buried in Hadoop and big data.
2: But the main thing right now is that this is sort of an invite only product. It's not broadly
0: available. That is true. Although I I'm not sure whether it's actually hard to get into the CTP or not. It might actually be fairly quick. I I don't actually know.
2: Yeah. Well, and and the longer this goes on, I mean, we're we're talking about it, this is April 2012. It's going to be public soon. So by the time you've heard the show, it may already be public, but if you've got a project, you should be trying this out. Nice thing about these invite-only things? They're free.
0: There are a couple of other Hadoop on Azure resources that I'll send you offline to include in the show notes.
1: You bet. We awesome. Bill, thanks very much. It's been some fascinating stuff.
0: It's been a pleasure talking to you, gentlemen.
1: All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. It's gonna, it's gonna thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com.